All right, what's up, gents? We are live for episode number 17 of the Playing to Win series. I'm joined by Pijman Gadimi. How you doing, brother? How are you? I appreciate you having me on, Rich. Yeah, thanks for joining me, man. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a background on who my guest is today. So I'll just read off his bio here. Uh, Pijman Gadimi is a self-made entrepreneur, philosopher, and the author of the best-selling books, Third Circle Theory and Radius. Over the last 20 years, Pijman has built a multitude of businesses ranging from one-of-a-kind investment firm that focuses on alternative asset management known as VIP motoring to a series of online education businesses including Secret Entourage, Exotic Car Hacks, and Watch Trading Academy that have reshaped what people learn. In 2018, Pijman's companies finished the fiscal year with over $87 million in combined revenue, a byproduct of his very own teachings. Uh, PJ is a perfect example of how resourcefulness and self-education are the two most powerful keys to success. Today, PJ is a mentor to over 36,000 students from across the globe. His teachings have created many six, seven, and eight-figure entrepreneurs. Thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate you having me. That's quite the, uh, that's quite the resume. <laughs> I've been at it for a while. I always say if you stick to something long enough, eventually you get really good at it. <laughs> And um, you're also recently on the Netflix series, uh, World's Fastest Car, was it called, or something along that yeah, line? Yeah, Fastest called? Car. I was Fastest. in uh, season two. Yeah, and you were the, um, you know how they cast people for these shows? They've, they've got the geek, the nerd, the girl, you know, the underdog, and then they've got the rich asshole. They kind of yeah, cast I mean, you for that guy. Absolutely. I, I told him, I said, I will, I will play the part really well because I'm naturally very direct and that gets taken as an asshole quite easily by people. So I wasn't really out of shape that much. People said they made you look so bad. And I said, no, they actually made me very look very nice. You know, on the show, I made the guy that I was racing cry and yeah. they cut that part out, which I thought was kind of messed up. Cause I was like, it's a fact of life. Like there was a lot of confidence issues for the guy. And basically what I was saying was getting to him. And he tried to leave the set early and they didn't show it, which I thought I was like, sucked. They would have made for a more dramatic episode you know there was a sound bite in that episode um guy said something like you know i really don't like rich people they kind of act like they have one up on you sort of thing and you're like well don't they yeah what was that like on set like was there some tension because it looked like his face kind of dropped it was like deer in the headlights sort yeah, of. yeah you know when i when i got on that show at the beginning i i've been on many shows before so it wasn't like oh first time on tv kind of thing so i kind of saw the guy and I realized really quickly, like right from the beginning, he was like trying to pick a fight. So I kind of took him to the side and I said, listen, man, you haven't been on TV before. I'm going to give you this like tip. Just small jabs, but don't go at it. Because if you go at it, I'm going to tear your ass a new one. Like you're like, I'm going to like unleash and I'm being like, I'm being very respectful. I'm being sweet. And he's like, yeah, man, whatever, dude. I was like, okay, but you know, I'm going to be me. If you want to be you, I'll be me. And it's not going to work out very well for us. And it started that way. And he got very like offended and butthurt. But I really genuinely believe if someone has more money in terms of has made something more of themselves because of the dollar they've generated in their life versus someone couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that someone does have something on that person. Doesn't mean that they are better of a person, it just means that they've learned how to do something that the other person couldn't figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I get accused of being a little too cocky sometimes, like I'm better than you. I think that I've, I've heard from time to time, but then when you click through on their avatar, it's like, okay, I see why you're upset. Your life isn't the greatest. Um, so I want you to kind of dive into your, uh, like your Batman origin story, how you got to the man that you are today. Cause you're still quite young, and you said that you retired at 31-ish or, or so, I think. You're 36 now? I'm 30. I'm, I just turned 38, actually. 38, okay. So um, you're originally from Iran, Iran. Uh, refugeed with your mom in mm -hmm. France. Can you yep. can you kind of take the story from there? Like, of How did course. you get to the place that you are at? Because, I mean, you, the last that I heard as far as a job goes, when I was looking at your stuff, you were working in banking, and you got fired from that job. So... So kind of take yes, me to how you got there and where you are today. So, I'm just going to put you know, full screen here just to kind of give you a little bit of a soapbox to stand on. Go ahead. Yeah. So when I was very young, we came to the U.S. Like you said, we were, I, was, I was born in Iran, raised in France. We basically became refugees of France based on the revolution that was going on in Iran. And then uh, over time in France, my mom tried very hard to get us to the U.S. You know, she 
just did whatever she could do in her life to try to basically give us, give me and her like a, a decent life or a roof over our head and, and food and shelter basically. And through the years, she built a decent business for herself. Nothing that made her rich, but at least gave her enough to just get by. But long story short, we moved forward. And finally, after 11 years, got a visa to come to the United States. She had to leave all of her life behind the second time now uh, in France to come to the US. And we ended up in LA. In LA, she attempted to start a small restaurant and that restaurant was basically a coffee shop in hopes of getting a green card or being basically given the ability to stay in the US by having a business. And we did that. The business failed miserably. Uh, she lost all of her money. And ultimately, we ended up taking a journey from California to Virginia, where we ended up in her brother's basement um, as illegal immigrants, you know, basically ended up there and we had uh like just the we had social security numbers but they said not valid for work and they were basically still reviewing our case for staying you know in the country etc so you know it was a difficult time where basically we couldn't work and so she went to work for her brother together and she basically became a cashier during that time and you know my mom was very uh, royal during her time in iran meaning like she had a very good job she was head of a uh, a big government agency there. So it was very bizarre for, for me to watch someone with so much class and elegance basically be a cashier in a crappy restaurant, you know, and, and us living in a basement with a mattress. And I kind of got tired of it. You know, I said that I, I guess the, 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 the cards that I was dealt with in this life were going to require me overcoming this hurdle. I didn't see a silver lining. I didn't see basically the light at the end of the tunnel if I just stood around and did nothing. And so I decided I was going to go to work and I started working and I couldn't work in, in a conventional job because I didn't have a green card. So I started washing cars uh, for $2 a car, $5 a car, whatever I could do. And uh, moving forward, I duped the guy during my uh, high school years to basically get me a job uh, I, I was about, about a little bit under 15. I was about to turn 15 and basically get, got me a job as a telemarketer. Uh, and I got them to overlook the fact that I didn't have papers. And, you know, being a telemarketer that young, not barely speaking like English in a good way, I still basically figured out that, you know, I didn't have a choice but to make it work. And, you know, fast forward, basically I turned a $12 an hour job into $2,500 a week in commissions selling roofing, siding and windows and everything else. And by 18, I was the director of that very same company. And then I had a green card and I started looking at the future of what, you know, could be of my life. And I said, I've already hit the ceiling in this small company. I have to look bigger and I have to start back at the bottom somewhere where there's a larger ceiling. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life, but I knew that banking, I, since I wanted to make a lot of money and most people want to get rich when they're young, but I really meant it. I just didn't want to live in a basement. It just bothered me. And so at 18, you know, I was making enough money to basically buy me and my mom a, a townhome and we kind of moved in on our own. So we, we became once again, the two people team we've always been. And I started in banking. I kind of convinced the guy, I convinced my mom's friend who was a bank manager to get me an interview with another bank manager. And basically I was trying to make up my 80K year salary at 18 uh, in banking. And the only job that would allow me to do that was a bank manager. And apparently you can't really be a bank manager without a degree. Uh, and you can't really be a bank manager without having previous experience banking. Well, I still figured out a way to get the guy, convince the guy to give me a job in the management trainee program. And basically, fast forward uh, nine months later, you know, I graduated the program. It came out. I did get my bank manager job at the age of 18, which made me basically one of the youngest bank managers in the United States. And then I became a vice president of that same bank by 23. Now, by 25, my ambition outgrew my capacity at the time. And so I found myself sitting on my ass, um, fired. But one of the things that did occur that was great is I had already made a lot of money in my life and I'd gotten to a point now where I wasn't leaving uh, or and I wasn't on my ass broke. I was just out on my ass without purpose, without direction, because I always thought that I would be a banker for life. I was really good at it. Uh, I was so good at it. I was a poster child of that bank and it felt really bizarre to be alienated and kind of taken from the poster child to the nobody gives a crap about you, you can get out. So, you know, it took me a year to overcome that. But from there, I combined my passion for cars uh, and my uh, knowledge of finance and I created the world's first alternative investment fund that basically gave people access to investing in automotive uh, watches and arts.
And Can I just take you back to the banking thing? Because I wanted to ask you a, a sure. question. I've noticed a lot of times when you get let go from a job, they hire you because of your resume, but they let you go because of fit. Would you say that's true? So that's a really good way to look at it. I think that uh, I don't think they let me go. I think I fired myself in a way. And I, mm. let me explain what I mean by that. You, but you brought yeah. up a really good point when you said fit. Because, you know, at some point, I, we're, we're car people, so I'll bring a car story into this. And, you know, one day I was looking basically outside the boardroom I was in with a lot of my peers who all were, you know, much older than I was. I was a very young guy in that position. And a lot of my peers were like 40, 50 years old. And, you know, basically I looked out the window and all of them had like really the latest Mercedes or Lexus cars or anything, you know, all sitting outside and they were all black. And there I was with a bright ass orange Lamborghini in between all those cars and i started realizing you know after the fact yeah i figured you know i used to think they were the ones that were weak and they were the ones that were basically like non-aspirational they didn't want a better life and this and that but i realized that you know looking back that at that mental photo i have i was the threat right because i was the different one uh they all had matching black cars you know and so i started realizing that I had grown so bored of my job that basically I had stopped trying to fit in, you know, and I had gone from becoming the poster child to being the, the threat that was basically leveraging that against them in a way, you know, mm -hmm. I was overpaid, you know, I was underutilized and yet I was basically still getting the most benefit. And it got to a point where leadership started changing and they realized like, why are we even wasting time doing this? You know, it doesn't make sense. And basically, so you're correct to say that fit was the reason why you know it didn't work out in the long term okay so you get let go and you figured i'm not going to go work for somebody else you've got some experience in finance what did you do next well i started a company called vip motoring which at the time was just a tuning shop it started as that's why it was called motoring and nothing mm -hmm. banking or anything else it started just basically putting wheels and tires and everything else on cars you know suspension some of the basic bolt-ons mm -hmm. and you know fast forward to the last recession we had uh, I basically, as a banker, I kind of foresaw what was coming and a lot of my contracts for these uh, car parts were basically dealerships. I had a unique niche where I was customizing cars at dealerships before they were sold. So basically I was creating packages like Brabus and things like that hmm. for cars for dealers. And when I realized that these contracts were going to basically end soon, primarily because the recession was coming, you know, I felt like basically we're going to come back. Well, I started this in 2005 and in 2000, about 2007, I started feeling kind of like the changes. And the reason I felt the changes- What did you feel I was like? In, what were your spidey senses picking up on? Well, well, let me tell you, it was actually the banking part of it. It was mm -hmm. because I realized that the bank lending was pulling back on cars mm -hmm. from 140% LTV to like 80. And I started saying like, wait a, a minute. They would lend 140% loan to value? 140% loan to value. On cars. Yeah, like isn't that crazy? Asset. That's yeah, nuts. That is, that's, that's crazy, mental. Right? Okay. And it didn't matter you were buying a Honda or you were buying like a Ferrari. They didn't care what the asset was. Okay. They basically looked at it and go, oh yeah, well, if this guy qualifies, you know, and the car's $10,000, well, basically he can get up to 14,000 on his good credit, you know? Okay, okay. And, and I knew that was wrong because I was in the banking space the whole time this was happening. So when I started seeing it pull back, I started seeing the indicators that they were basically starting to look at the fact that this wasn't going to last forever. And one of the things I would say is Wall Street's always ahead of Main Street. And so when I saw Wall Street pulling back, I started thinking to myself, I go, well, Main Street's about to feel this very soon. And so when I went to my, towards my contracts, at first everybody was like, no, we're fine. We're still selling cars. Hmm. And then I started, I started seeing the changes in how many cars were still there every time it showed up. No new cars were coming. The same cars were sitting with my stuff on it. So I started kind of conversing and they said, basically, we're not getting the lending. So eventually we're just going to have to cut back this program because we're not going to be able to sell cars at 120, 130% of LTV with these parts. And people can't finance them anymore. Most people aren't going to want to put $30,000, $40,000 down. So it's not going to work. And I said, okay, so what are we going to do? They go, well, we're going to cancel your contract. So long story short, I basically had to watch as they were basically pulling all my revenue down to nothing, you know, because they were the lifeline of my entire business. And I, instead of doing that, I basically started forecasting that they were going to be stuck with a lot of cars. So I started looking at what if I was able to buy those cars at significant discounts when they went under and I was able to basically buy them and resell them later, you know, basically just park my money there if I was cheap enough. 
And so I did that. Just as an individual. Well, at first I thought about it as an individual, but then it wasn't going to work because I wasn't going to be able to pay taxes on everything. So I ended up getting a dealer's license in VA and I ended up turning VIP motoring into auto sales too. Now my goal was I'm just going to buy cars and sell them. And I realized nobody's buying cars in the middle of a recession, you know? So I put all my money into these cars and they're sitting there and nobody wanted to buy them. And I didn't have a reputation for selling them. And basically I used my banking connections from back in the day to call some of my old clients that were with me back in the day, like investing, basically saying, where are you parking your money now? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were like, well, right now we're still looking for options, but we don't trust the banks. You know, we're trying to look for alternative places to put it. So I was like, well, you want to put it into some Ferraris, Lamborghinis? And they were like, why? Like that stuff is going to die. And I'm like, well, I bought it cheap enough. Mm-hmm. I guarantee your money personally because I had some money and I was like, you know what? I'll back your money if you back my cash flow, basically, because I tied my money in these cars. So if you untie it and something happens, I'll pay the difference, you know? Mm-hmm. So you can't really like basically lose. And it was a way for me to gain their confidence. And I must have made like 200, 250 calls, you know, to different people that I felt could have been qualified to give me anywhere from two to $5 million. Mm-hmm. And basically I ended up finding two people that backed it for me. And at the time I only had like three and a half million dollars in inventory. So but, two out of 250 committed to backing the fund. Yeah. So basically working with me on this first batch. I love know? how you just kind of like flew over that. Like that's just par for the course. It just happens to everybody. And that's the thing that a lot of guys don't understand is that you got to make some calls. Like you got to do some work to close the deal. It's not like, you know, you make a couple calls and then you get three no's. You're like, oh, this is not going to work. I'm just going to mm-hmm. give up. Right. Well, you know, it was more than that because I realized that when I was in banking, all these people that were my friends and everything, all these clients that were kissing my ass, they were only there because I was backed by the name of the bank. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't like basically like they weren't investing in me. They were basically buying through the bank and they were saying, listen, I I like you, so I'm going to do business with you. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't they didn't want to do business with me. So I realized when I started calling people after that, basically, there was a very small pool of maybe 10 people that really where in the bank only to do business with me specifically, you know? So I started realizing that. And out of those 10 people, basically, I identify originally three people. One of them backed out last minute. So it left me with basically two people that backed my first batch of cars. Now, as I did and went through buying more cars, I started realizing how this game worked. And I learned as I was going. I made some mistakes, but the overall scope of my gig was pretty solid 20% returns. So I said, I'll split the return with you. And if there's a danger, I'll back up your danger with my personal money. Mm-hmm. And he kept going and he kept going and he kept going. And basically, uh, as we kind of grew, it became this whole investment firm in exotic cars. And we needed to create more cash flow because we realized we didn't have that much units and that many like re- repetitions and there wasn't that much margin in these cars. And I had to pay all these investors. So I started looking into other assets and I started learning the watch business and the art business and basically came to a level where basically I was, I was becoming a buyer for stuff. I was going around looking for stuff, anything from watches to cars to art that people didn't want or needed to get out of. And I basically created all the connections to buy the margins. And doing that a couple of years, I got really, really good at it. Uh, and basically created a brokerage side to our business that basically allows the same customers to invest money, but also as a result, get access to cars they can actually drive because these funds were not like they would buy the cars and take them home. They were investing in the cars and they were staying with me. Mm-hmm. So whenever they wanted their own car, of, basically. Uh, return did you have to pay on that? Originally 15, 17%, which was very high, you know, yeah. especially because I was keeping three to 5%, but I was learning the model. Now yeah. we only pay 10%, which is very, mm-hmm. very little compared to what's happening in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's about to become a lot compared to what's about to happen. <laughs> but, yeah, but, meaning, about that towards yeah, yeah. but meaning 10% was what I considered a much uh, mm-hmm. more fair investment for everybody. And the benefit wasn't just the 10%. It was the access to the brokerage firm. I was finding people that basically bought cars and watches anyways. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, hey, I need a dealer license to do this. Like there's a lot of play that you can give me here by just being part of this. Mm-hmm. So it just worked out. And so our first basically 20 uh, investors slash clients became very close friends. And we realized that 40 people was the max capacity we had. We couldn't scale it anymore. There wasn't any more inventory. And over the years, we shifted from just being an investment firm to being a full, basically buy, sell, uh, trade for watches, art, and cars. You know, and so we did that, and we continue to do it uh, 
again, like meaning I still own that business. It's in Virginia. I no longer, uh, I no longer work there, meaning I no longer work at the facility on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. uh, since 2011, I moved over to Florida to focus on all my online properties. Uh, and that's become kind of my core focus in life, more so the teaching than the actual working. I kind of got tired of the whole building a business thing. I thought it was very boring. Yeah. Um, I got a question for you because I see sure. here, I'm just scrolling up here in the StreamYard chat and I don't know who this user is, but you didn't mention your dad growing up. Uh, mm -hmm. This guy's praising your book towards the end, but he also says almost confident his dad or grandfather passed away and left him millions that he built off of. <laughs> so my dad actually abandoned me and my mom when I was, uh, uh, when I was very young, actually, when I was three years old, mm -hmm. uh, we left uh, Iran, you know, so because we had to leave, right? Because my mom's position was at stake because of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And I actually never saw my dad again until I was 30. My dad's actually still alive. Mm -hmm. um, my grandpa like? is dead. Huh? What was that like when you ran into him at 30? Well, it wasn't ran into him. It wasn't random. So, yeah. you know, when I, when I left, he was basically told me and my mom to go to France and he would join us. He mm -hmm. never came. Years later, he came to basically serve my mom papers. I saw him for one day and then he disappeared. He set up a new family for himself, you know, in Iran and kind of went mm -hmm. his way. Mm -hmm. Years later, I was visiting Dubai. You know, I had been much more successful in my life and people kind of knew that across my family grounds, et cetera, in, in Iran. And so word got to him that I would be visiting Dubai. And since Dubai is a country he can visit from Iran, he just wanted to meet. And he asked uh, my aunt who then asked my mom if it'd be okay if she let him know where I would be, what hotel, so he could come and at least engage in some level of conversation. And mm -hmm. so he showed up and... You know, it wasn't bad at all, actually, because I never held it against my dad for leaving. I never thought that was a bad thing that he left. Mm -hmm. Like, I actually thought my after I met my dad again at 30, I felt that it was a great thing that my dad left because he's the conventional type of person that was very like in his with his new family. It's very much like my daughter has to go to school and she has to graduate college and then become an architect, a lawyer, that kind of mentality. You know, and there's nothing else but the conventional path to success. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that if I had grown up with someone that was so restrictive and so authoritative towards uh, just following the path others have taken, I would have probably never been here. So it actually gave me a lot of confidence in the fact that I guess everything happens for a reason. And him leaving was really liberating my mom mm -hmm. to raise me on her terms, her way. And I think my mom basically just said, hey, listen, you got to learn how to play the game. You know, <laughs> you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. And take the hits and run with it. I met this guy of uh, 29 or 10 at this conference, uh, Suli breaks and he does, you know, he's a spoken word artist and one of these, um, hits for him, like he got like five, 10 million views off this one video, but he said something in it along the lines of never let school get in the way of your education. Yeah, and, um, I'm not a big fan of college or university in its current like form today. I, I don't really think it serves men and it seems to be like an indoctrination system for, uh, toxic feminist values today anyway. But mm -hmm. um, what do you think of the path through entrepreneurship versus the path through colleges or universities? Like if you could do it all over again, would you do it exactly the same way or would you go to university and college? If you had a son, let's say, would you encourage him to do the school route or would you encourage him the entrepreneurship route? Like what well, would you look you know, at? So I, I think the first thing we need to kind of break down here is that I don't believe the word entrepreneurship is used properly. So I think entrepreneurship is what? about because I think entrepreneurship is about the evolutionary process where creativity meets business mm -hmm. versus I think being a business owner is a very different thing. So I don't consider a restaurant owner an entrepreneur. Yeah, by, there's a lot no of guys like, out there that call themselves an entrepreneur, but they're right. Well, I mean, you know, they, they just own a franchise. A they do two hundred thousand right. dollars a year. And like they is, basically there, there employ themselves, right? Yeah, that's fine. Right. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Totally I mean, that's agree. a conventional way of doing business. You know, if you mm -hmm. own a gas station and make a lot of money doing that, more power to you for doing that. But I don't yeah. call you an entrepreneur for being a cashier at your own place. I basically call you a business owner and you own your own gas station. And but there's that, a lot of power to that. That's society in general, I think, that's kind of robbed that term from the prestigious level down to like the more like there's there's people out there that you'll see that will babysit seven dogs and they and they call themselves an entrepreneur because they have a dog walking business that's right. not and the same as the guy it, that exactly has, yeah right right and i think that's why i say if if i had to choose between 
my own child at some point, which I don't have kids, but if I was to have kids and they were going to ask me, should I go to college or not? Mm-hmm. I think anything you do, regardless that you choose to go to college or that you take on the business route, has to come from a place that has a plan associated with it. I think too many times today we have young kids that go to school without a plan. And listen, I'm not a fan of school in the sense that I'm like, you have to go to school or can't go to school. But if you know you, if you know for a fact you want to be a lawyer and you go, I want to be a lawyer, that's what I want to do. You need to well, you kind, of, you kind of should go that route because you should learn law the way society teaches law, you know, because it's important. However, if you said like, listen, I, I want to start, I, I want to be rich. Okay, well, just being rich doesn't mean you have to go to school to get rich. That, that's not correlated. So I think that when parents go, well, to be successful, you have to go to school. That's the key to breaking the person down and forcing formalized education that isn't relevant. And, and I think what happens is then basically you're telling your kid, like, you need your diploma, but you're not telling them why you need it. If the, if the kid later is going to start a business, what, is he going to hang the diploma in his home office? You know, is he going to hang it in his, like, little office in the corner that nobody's going to see? Like, there is no purpose to it. So there is no point to the path. So I think if my child came to me and said, hey, I don't want to go to school, I wouldn't say, well, hey, you know what? You don't have to go to school. Don't worry about it. Like, you're good now. I would ask, what's the plan? Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't go to school, but I had a plan. Yeah, like, meaning I I had a plan. I was working a job as, as a banker, meaning I already had a path, and I was working hard to go up the path. I was already in a position that required a degree, and I was managed to get it without it. So I asked myself, if I got a degree today, how would it have changed my life? It wouldn't have. Would it have permitted me to go to the next step? No, I still got to the next step. So I had a plan. And I think any person that considers school without a plan or school with a plan, right? Like either ways, if you don't have a plan, you're screwed. If you have a plan, then part of that plan requires making the right decisions that will get you closer to your goal. And I think that if school is used as leverage to get to your personal goal, it's fine. But if you don't have a goal, I think teaching your kids to have a goal first holds a lot more weight than just forcing formalized education on them one way or another. Are you planning to have kids? Yeah, absolutely. At some point. I'm going to throw up your um, Instagram here because I kind of want to segue into what what you seem to be most passionate about publicly anyway. It seems to be cars, right? Well, cars and watches. Um, Cars and watches on the surface, philosophy on the inside. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you've had pretty much every exotic car that has come out in the last 15 odd years. Um, I don't see a lot of Ferraris, but... um, I've done the Ferrari thing too. I've done the F12. I've done the 458. I've done the Speciale. Yeah. Uh, I've done the Challenge. I've done the Scuderia. And I've done the... Is there any car that you haven't had yet that that you'd like to get? Uh, No, I've basically had... If if I want something bad enough, I get it anyways. Like, I mean, there's nothing that's really out of, like impossible to buy it's more of a question of do i care to own it i think that's the other thing that's big for me yeah. is if i'm not excited about a car like it's almost like eh. the, the thing with cars too like a lot of people ask me they're like why don't you like buy things like paganis and like stuff like that and i tell them that's basically it's, no, there's one reason i would never drive it on the street mm-hmm. like never like because like the moment someone hits it you're done like mm-hmm. you just lost a million bucks just because you got an accident Mm-hmm. So like, I just like, I refuse to draw, to buy something. I can't drive. You've, you've mentioned a couple of times in videos. So, uh, PJ has got a YouTube channel. It's, um, exotic car hot hack. Sorry. You can find it on YouTube. It's easy to find. So you've mentioned a few times that the DBS has been a car that you've done quite well on that. You've made a lot of money on. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I was actually looking at these in 2012, uh, 2012, 2013, around the time when I was uh, shopping for my R8. And there was one up for 120, I think. Mm-hmm. I can't find one right now on the Auto Trader. I'm talking Canadian dollars. Um, I can't find one now on the Auto Trader for less than 230. Um, what do these sell for in the States now? So it depends. It depends on the year and it depends on the, if it has a six speed or not. So the six speed market's been going to the roof. Yeah, so crazy. back in the day, you could buy an 09 six-speed for as low as like 80 grand. Yeah. Now the 09 six-speeds are anywhere from 120 to 150, depending on who has one. It's basically supply and demand. There's less of them on the market. 
So whatever one pops up, everybody's running to fight for the same deal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it drives the price up. But you can buy like a really nice 2012 DBS for like 85 to 90 grand, you know, and mm -hmm. that's a lot of just an automatic, you know, because mm -hmm. in 12, they really didn't make that many six speeds. I think like only two of them. Uh, so you don't, you know, that's a lot of car to have. I mean, you can, you can sell them for like hundred grand. So you've got a good 20 K margin. In them. Right. Sir, what, what's, um, what car would you still like to have that you haven't picked up yet? That I would still like that I haven't picked up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sorry, there's wait. one car that I actually, I'm trying to pick up today. I try to wire half a million for it. It didn't work out. We're short like 20 grand. Like when we're like going back and forth with the dealer, but I'm trying mm -hmm. to buy a really, uh, unique Pista like uh, Ferrari Pista. So it's funny yeah. you said I don't do Ferrari earlier, yeah. uh, but I, it's like the perfect Pista that would be a, a perfect sidekick to the SVJ that I just recently got. So that's why uh, I was trying to buy that specific one, but otherwise that's the only car that I've really, there's one car, it's actually funny, that's a Ferrari that I've really wanted that I've never had the balls to own. That's what it is um, guys, for those of you that don't know what a Ferrari Pista is. Yeah, and the, the one freaking car I've been trying to own that I've never had the balls to buy has been the F12 TDF. Why is that? I just never, I, I just don't believe I can get out of it if I buy it. You know what I mean? Like, meaning I, I feel like it's one of those cars you're stuck with forever unless someone really wants it worse than you. Uh -huh. Like, it, it's just there's such a small amount of them that move hands, meaning like there's such low traded cars. Mm -hmm. And every friend I've ever had that's owned one, like basically was married to it for like four years. And I feel like I get bored of my cars like every like six to eight months. So it's like hard for me to be like, I'm going to buy this for a year and then be like, I want out and be like, oh, yeah, I got to sit on it for like three more years. Do you own these personally or do you run them through your dealership so no. that you don't pay taxes? 100% me. Yeah. If you see it on my Instagram, it's 100% owned by me, meaning like it is paid by me. And in 99% of cases, paid taxes on with a personally owned tag, no Montana tags or anything. So, so how do you make money off an exotic car? Because, I mean, you claim that leasing is stupid. You also say that yep. there's a way to hack the exotic car market so you can make money off it. So, mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm going to go out and buy a $300,000 McLaren 720, that's what they go for here roughly. So let's say it's 300 grand. You're going to pay 13% tax on it. Mm -hmm. McLarens in value tend to drop like a stone. <laughs> I'm sure you've or, seen like, that. That's the, I mean, I've owned like a dozen, I know. Yeah, yeah. So... Like, how do you make any money off them or at least call it a wash? If, well, because you're thinking you're of it. taxes the, on them too. Right, but you're thinking in the new term, right? Mm -hmm. And even new, like I'll, I'll give you some, some examples, right? Like concrete dollar examples because data rules opinion. Like that's my thing in, with money. Like yeah, money always, money never lies, right? People do, but money doesn't. So the thing with the, let's use the SVG as an example, right? Because I just got one. So we're going to use something. Yeah, here, I'll throw it up exactly. on the screen so these guys yeah. can see it. So that's so this the is a, that's the that's a 2019 SVJ. It had 300 miles on it. Okay, 300 miles. It's one year old. It's like seven months old to be exact. That car was 580k when it came out. Okay, 580 thousand dollars. That's the sticker on this exact car. Now they can go as high as 700, or they can go as low as like 520. So this was a what I consider the right percentile of options. It has all the correct options. There's some options it could have to be prettier, but it doesn't need them. So when you're looking at that sticker, basically you go, if you walked in the dealership and bought it for 580K, and right now you would have lost about $120,000 on your car, even if you had driven it one mile. But if you bought it 120K off of sticker and the depreciation isn't going to change for the next two years, then you're technically 40K ahead of the retail market. So if you buy way, not just new, but I mean, even if you buy used yeah. at the right depreciation angle, basically what you do is you're buying the depreciation ahead. So you have room from wholesale to retail, just like a dealer does. Except if you pick the right car, the wholesale to retail doesn't change that much over the years like a conventional car. So if you look at depreciation, for example, on a 720S, okay, you see the depreciation brand new and you basically continue that depreciation all the way down over the next five years and it's brutal. You know, like the first two years are really bad and the rest keeps getting worse, you know, as you drive because the miles and the condition go up. However, if you buy as an example, a 675LT, 
the one before that, but the LT model, right? There's only so many of them. So what happens is, what happens is it starts high at like 420K for the sticker and it drops over uh, in the next four years, it basically drops to like 200K. And you can see that, you can clearly see that by looking up one right now, 675 LT sells between 180 to like 220, depending on if it's a spider or coop. You but guys get away is, with amazing prices there, man. Right, there's right. A, we do. There's, well, that's a, why there's an MSO 675 LT with a roof scoop and the vents and the fenders for sale um, in Quebec, I think. I was looking at it last night, and it's something like 400000 Canadian. So that doesn't count. You're comparing apples to oranges now. Roof scoop cars in the older LT hold a lot more weight because there were so few units. They hold Until the value. The six, Right. Until the 600 LT, the previous McLaren models with roof scoops were really rare. Yeah. Now with the 600, they produce so many roof scoops that it just doesn't really help. Like it just basically became an option. But yeah. if you look at the 675 LT, there's so few that even when you have a dealer that holds a roof scoop car, they basically don't want to sell it. So they're saying- Let me see if I can pull that, it up here to show what it looks like to be. You know, they're basically know saying that's the dollar progress. and that's what it is because they know you don't have a comparable car on the market, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's not necessarily a, a relevant point, but what happens to the to a car like the 720s is the depreciation schedule from 400 to you know the 200 margin basically takes two years, and on an LT car it takes four years, and then from there it depreciates. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's going to always go for more money because yeah. it's a roof scoop. It's got all the right options, the right color. Three three ninety is what he's asking for it. Realistically, that's a 300k car. Just so you know like yeah. 280 to 290. The dealer needs to make the margin. They might hold it a while. So they basically try to make 30% on people. Yeah. Got it. So is, is a strategy that you're using that makes it work? It's all, it's all coming down to the vehicle and then the price that you get it at. So it's the negotiation really is what it boils down to. No. So it's selecting the right car, selecting the right mileage, selecting the right option packs to guarantee that when you try to sell it, it doesn't become a burden. Because one mm -hmm. of the biggest fear people have is they go, if I try to sell my car and I can't, then I'm stuck with it. Mm -hmm. And if I get stuck with it, then basically it's gonna be very hard for me to get my money back out. But if you're buying the right cars at the right prices, there's always a buyer. But if you're buying just the, the car at the right price, but it's not the right car, then there isn't always a buyer on the other hand. You know? What's the most important factor, is it the pricing? No, or is it it's pricing the exit, and the car? It's the exit strategy. Okay. So, uh, like, let's say you buy a car now and you go, great deal today. But if that car isn't going to be a great deal in 12 months, then basically you're going to have to lose money to get out. Mm -hmm. And that's the part people don't pay attention to. You see, they get married to the car just like they get married to their wives without ever questioning the divorce because they say, well, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what happens though is you have to be prepped for that. You have to assume that when you hit the divorce point, you're pre prepared for what's coming. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at it as you're basically getting a prenup. It's like a guarantee that you know exactly what you're going to lose by the time you get out, or you're not going to lose based on how you buy. And if you have that top of mind, then you're basically going to be ahead of the market by the time you get out, even in the case of a COVID insane thing happening that stops the market it still doesn't matter like it, it just does not change the game because you're ahead of the dollar significantly let's um let's segue into the covid and the economy in just a moment does your system work in canada too or is it specific to the us yeah, it works no i mean it's the only reason canada doesn't work as well as the us is a you have less supply of exotics B, your banking systems aren't as advanced as ours in terms of how much they lend and how willing they are to lend on exotics. So they require mm -hmm. more money down. And do you so, mostly buy these with debt or do you buy them with cash? No. Well, it depends on the car. Like, for example, my Ford GT older car, all cash. Like mm -hmm. this Pista I'm trying to buy, all cash. Um, my Rolls Royce Don, I put uh, a loan so I can write off the interest on my business and I don't mm -hmm. have to use the cash. It all depends really on if there is leverage in doing the financing or not. If there isn't, then no, there's no need for it. Got it. Uh, got a question here from Neo. He says, hey, PJ, your opinion around when do you think this COVID will die down? Economy will go back to normal. Thanks. 
So it depends on when you're looking or what factors of the economy you reference. If you're referencing the stock market, the real estate market, the car market, the watch market, they're all not tied together. While they have some level of impact on each other, they're not necessarily correlated. Like I'll give you an example, the hypercar market for like cars that were basically 918s, P1s, the stuff that's really expensive. That stuff in the classic car market basically died, like went to shit last year at the end of the year. So it was ahead of its time, right? So the big money that came in the game basically exited the game before the issues. And then, so you'd have that big drop then. Now we've seen that stable back up while the mid-tier market started basically getting an influx of cars on the market from people losing their jobs for, and everything else and dealers not being willing to pay big money for cars because they couldn't buy and sell cars during that time. So basically auctions were closed, trades were closed. As a result of that, a lot of dealers basically weren't writing checks unless the deal was so good that they, they couldn't lose. So basically they were writing checks so low that they brought the mid market completely down. And if you look on the watch market, watches historically do the opposite of cars. Meaning whenever investments get really tough when it comes to uh, like people putting money in banks in the stock market because there's a lot of volatility. They basically park money in Rolex, Patek, and some of these other brands. So it makes it much easier to basically corner the market if you play overall across all channels rather than just playing one channel where you say, oh, well, the economy is horrible, but the real estate market doesn't really hasn't really moved recently as much as it had at first when it dropped and now it's back up. So how is or where is the correlation, which... You could say basically, depending on what gets hit, like tech isn't hit right now. Tech's actually super strong. So the, the tech valuation aren't dropping because people are staying home. You know, like if you look at CVS or those stocks, I mean, they're not necessarily bad, but if you look at Boeing or if you look at airlines and like they're shit, they're almost dead. The hotels are almost dead, you know? Mm -hmm. So they're the ones impacted by the lack of cash flow during these times tech is, is going even more. So you just basically have to understand and look at economic factors, not as a whole. I think too many people make the mistake of looking at 2008 and saying, this is the same thing as 2008. It's the same exact no. thing, nothing's changed. It, it's not, it's completely different. And there are similarities to consumer behavior when there's fear, but they are, they, there's not fear towards the same markets. And also I usually, challenge people when they say it's the same as 2008. I said, listen, 2008, the Dow went down to like, what, like 6,000? There's, yeah, there's a lot less, there's a lot less money at play in 2008 than there is now. In our worst mm. right now, we're like 17,000. So it's like, you have such a, such a difference in dynamic in the market today than you had in 2008 that I think people aren't taking in consideration when they're looking at the economy as a whole. That also took at least a year, year like 14, 15 months for it to drop down 50% in 2008. Mm -hmm. We saw it drop down to, I think, 18,006. I think it's around 24 and a half right now. Okay. I think it's I think it's going to bounce down a few more times before we see a bottom, but of course, it's probably going to happen over the that. course of a year. Uh, Jerry, just want to shout out to you. You gave me a, a big super chat there. Thanks for sharing story. I'm Rich's age and coming back for being zeroed out twice. I'm already defying the odds. Rich, having guys like you on as a guest is important as schedule maintenance on an R8. Keep them coming, Rich. All right, thanks, dude. Appreciate that. Um, what do you get uh, criticized for the most, aside from the way you pronounce McLaren and Rolls-Royce? <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get criticized a lot for, for being very direct with poor people. Yeah, they don't like it much. They they want you I, to soften your tone and caress them and kiss their ass no, a little bit more you know, before you deliver the message. What it is. I I think you, it's it's a confidence issue, right? Like a poor person doesn't like to be called poor. Uh, I think that's really what it is. Like you you call someone fat and they're overweight and they get offended. Yeah. But I always say the only reason they get offended is because they don't have a plan out of the problem. Yeah. Like like try to get a guy that's up and coming, working, who has a plan and is, is working on himself to get himself out of poverty. He's not he's not going to get offended if you call him poor because he's he's he knows where he's heading. He knows he's not going to be poor forever. And he has a realistic take on where he is today. Like when I was poor and people said, oh, you're you're poor. You and mom, your mom don't have shit. Well, I looked around. I was like, we live in a basement. It's not even my basement. We have a mattress. I'm pretty sure what you're saying is accurate. 
but I really don't give a shit because I don't think I'm going to stay there. So I agree that I'm poor. Like, and I think mm -hmm. that was part of the reason I didn't stay there because I had a very clear awareness towards where my starting line was and, and what cards I was dealt. And I think that a lot of people don't have that path out of poverty. So when you criticize something that they don't know how to handle, they basically have only a defense towards it. You know, I, I had this issue come up back when I was growing in, in like throughout my career, uh, MLM, I'm sure you've heard of MLM companies that basically mm -hmm. extort people of whatever for the yeah. shitty products. You know, I had an MLM company, uh, like basically try to recruit a lot of my employees, you know? And I went to one of their meetings one time just to hear out what the fuck these people were basically falling victim of. And I realized that, you know, I, I would tell these people, I'm like, you're wrong and this is stupid and this is horrible. And they would fight me to the core. And I'm like, you have nothing. Why are you fighting this? Like, like, why are you hanging on to this idea? And then over the years, I realized that I was attacking their only hope. So if they gave in basically and they said, yeah, you're right, this is shit. They didn't have a backup plan. They didn't have a, like, I'm gonna go another way and basically start my own business and this is fraud and this is bullshit. They basically were like, you're attacking my only hope. So if I don't defend it, I'm gonna have no other plan. And one of the things I realized is that the same happens when I tell someone they're poor and they don't have a plan. Mm -hmm. They're basically like, you're attacking my dignity and I have nothing else left. And, and I think that one of the things that I've realized over the years is that I get criticized for that and I don't stop doing it because I feel like the, the mind needs a shock to wake up. You know, it needs to realize that it's not okay, but there is a way. And you have to question who you are and where you are if you're going to grow and change. And I think if you just let people be okay with being poor, then you're, all you're doing is basically feeding into their ego, saying, you'll do all right, be comfortable as long as it takes, you'll eventually find your way. And I'm more the opposite, where I'm more like, let me shock your mind into this realization as much as you might think I'm the enemy or I'm the asshole for saying it. If I'm that shock that's gonna wake you up, then it's okay, like I, I don't mind because I'm not gonna be in your life anyway, so I don't really give a shit. And at least if I trigger that to change, then, then you'll change. Even if out of the 10 people I shock, three wake up, it's better than none waking up. So that's how I kind of look at it. Yeah, I always say if somebody has a problem with the facts, um, it's not the facts that are the problem, right? I, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, I get the same thing. I mean, my, you know, for me, I think it was a function of my youth because my parents were pretty hard on me. I'm a firstborn too, right? So mm -hmm. it's always the oldest that gets shit on the most. And, um, you know, they always had big, you know, big expectations, you know, why can't you be more like so-and-so is your kid? So you always bust your chops and I was always hard on myself. So whenever somebody starts to sulk or they start to feel sorry for themselves, I just, I just say, look, man, stop, stop being a little pussy, pick yourself up that, you know, dust yourself off and go out there and try it again. It's like, you know, the guy the the guy that wins is the guy that got up one more time from losing you know he fell down eight times he got back up nine and he won the ninth time like for you you know you made uh 250 calls and you had two people contribute to the exotic car fund right you had you had to 248 times that you fell down before you got up twice and got off a phone call and people committed money so um it, like whenever I do it personally, I don't do it from a position of uh, critique or hate or resentment or any of those things. It's like take ownership for your, you know, for your life and go and do the work like everybody else is expected to out there. But I think that we live in this participation trophy society today that breeds a lot of weak men and it's not getting any better. There's there's like a lot of the most rare thing today, I believe anyway, is strong, competent, virtuous men that can get shit done. There's not a lot of guys out there like that anymore. There's more weaker men out there now. Well, I think social media has made it easy to find the other weak men to be amongst. I think that's basically, company, yeah. you know, like I think basically in the old days, you didn't have a voice if you were weak, right? Like meaning unless you were an expert or you were good at something, you had mastered something. Basically, mm -hmm. nobody even heard who you were, or what you were. But today's social media has made it so easy for even the ignorant to basically chime in on a conversation without any fact data or any type of even research and basically say, 
yeah, that's what I believe. And then all these other morons just basically trickle in following the same lead instead of educating themselves and saying, you know what, maybe I'd like to have an opinion on this based on my own research, you know? And I think that because the same way it's become so easy for people to be mediocre, it's been so easy to continue life without taking ownership that people have just become silent towards that process. They're like, well, I'm just good being me. I'm just going to be me. And I think it's like, well, what about the better you? It's like, no, that, that doesn't matter. I am me and the world has to accept me for me. I don't have to get better and be a part of the reason the world functions. I just have to be there and the world just has to accept me. And I think this mentality of entitlement and victimhood is the reason why people don't get, don't close the loops in their own lives and get anything done. You know, like if something happens to them, if their girlfriend leaves them, they go, oh yeah, like you don't realize what it's like to be heartbroken. Or if they get in a car accident, you don't know what it's like to be in a car accident where someone else hits you. And it's like, why do you seek someone to follow through your pain and your inadequacies instead of basically being part of the solution to move past this. And basically what they're looking for at that point is they're looking to feel good about their victimhood. And I think one of the issues is that social media has made it so easy for them to, that they basically don't change, they don't improve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when someone gets hit by a drunk driver, I get that obviously they may not have had truly a choice there, like it was, it happened to them. But by accepting that and by glorifying that, what happens is you meet others that go, yeah, drunk drivers should be off, but you're not really moving your own life past this. You're sticking and dwelling again in what has occurred to you. And one of the big mistakes people don't realize is that it's about moving past an experience, not living in the experience and being stuck in it. And, and it feels so good to be the victim because people agree with you. It's easy. It doesn't require effort. Yeah. And I think that that's what becomes the addiction, right? It's the attention you get for the nothing you've done. What's a lesson you had to learn the hard way and how could you help others avoid making that same mistake? A lesson I've had to learn the hard way. A I mean, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I think lessons around money are the most important lessons I've learned. I mean, you have to learn not to be emotional towards money. It's one of these things where I say, if you want to make a lot of money, stop worrying about making it and start worrying about what you're really good at. And I think once you get really good at something, you'll realize that the money comes after you because people want to pay you to do it rather than you just saying, I want to be rich. I want these things instead of figure out what you're really good at. I think that's the thing. I, I spend the majority of the beginning of my life chasing this idea of not being poor. And in context, many could argue, well, that's the reason I, I didn't end up poor. But I think one of the big things that occurred in the middle of my life was basically this shift in my mentality that was like, I can't run away from poverty. I have to encourage growth. And so one, they're, they're, those are two completely different things. And I realized that also when I got fired in a way, because, you know, I used to believe in the separation of we work for others and I work for myself. I used to say, I work for this bank, therefore I'm not my own boss. And that was a lie. We are our own boss no matter what we do, because we work with our own intent, right? Like if you work for somebody, meaning someone else writes your check, you're still working for yourself, meaning that person is paying you for a service. Like you are earning the money for your own benefit. You're not working there out of no choice because someone put a gun to your head. You're working there based on the skills and values you can provide. You just haven't faced the ability to provide them to someone on your own. So you're selling them to someone instead. But you're still creating that revenue for yourself. And I think that you want a bigger house, you want a nicer car, you want these things, so you work. And somewhere along the way, again, that victim mentality came in that like, I'm working for others and it's a bad thing. Nobody's worked for others. They've always worked for themselves. And I think when I let go of this idea that there's a separation and I've let go of this idea completely and I said, I was never fired, I fired myself because I no longer wanted to sell my services to these people. Mm -hmm. And I decided not to sell it the way they wanted me to sell it. So they didn't buy my service anymore. And when I started thinking that way, I started realizing that 
yeah, like I've always been in control, but I lost an entire year of my life dwelling on the idea that I was fired. You know, I said, I've gotten fired. I've lost my purpose. They took my things away, like meaning not my income, but they, they basically took what I was going good at, you know? And I realized, well, they didn't. They just took the title of the way I was selling these services. It doesn't mean I can only be good at what I did in banking. I can use everything I've learned and do everything I've done in other aspects of life, you know? And so I've realized that I never really worked for them to begin with. So this playlist PTW stands for playing to win. And there's two distinct ways that I see people play in life. They play to win or they play not to lose. So when you were describing earlier, when you were younger, you just didn't want to be poor. When somebody says, I just don't want to be poor, you're basically approaching life from a playing not to lose approach. Yep. And then it was after you had lost your job and then you had to go out on your own. That's when you started to play, playing to win for yourself. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happened. You know, the perspective matters, though, because, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you this. Very well, the result changes dramatically, right? Because if you're just trying not to be poor, that's a very different lifestyle from where you live today. Yes. But in addition to that, also think about the mindset of how many people quit their jobs. And the first thing they think about their business is they go, hey, how much money did I make at work? I was making 150 when I had this job. How can I make my new business make me 150? You see, they create a limitation on their business that has no correlation with their old job because they're so interested in their own benefit out of their new business. So they limit themselves because they're afraid. Like, again, they go back to what we just talked about, which is, I don't want to be poor, so I don't want to lose my income. Instead of basically, what if my business could make $30 million this year? Why am I limiting it to just making 150000 for myself? Because that's what job I had before. And I think that change in, in limitation and boundary of understanding is what drives so many people to downplaying themselves and basically playing themselves out of the game. Do you... Do you read books on a regular basis? Like, where do you consume your You want to laugh? I've never read a book from beginning to end. I cannot read. Like, it bothers the shit out of me. Like, I know how to read. I just don't like reading. Do you listen I've to books, learned... podcasts? Like, what do you prefer? No, nothing. Zero. What I enjoy doing the most, actually, is meeting people, interacting mm. with them. And I learn more from understanding people's fear boundaries, what bothers them, who they are, what they've done to get where they got. And I kind of learn from people who are really good at what they do, mm -hmm. what they basically or how they think. Does that make sense? Like, Absolutely. so, and, and that helps me understand basically industries because I realize I see a pattern. If like you find, for example, five guys that have found a lot of success in, let's say agriculture, I don't know anything about it, but I would learn more about from them as to what matters to learn in agriculture rather than just kind of learn everything about agriculture, which would be probably unwise in a time where I don't have time to learn everything about agriculture. So, you know, I learn through people more than I learn through, uh, like watching others interview people or even listening to their books. I think I would be a, a lot richer and two, a lot smarter if I read more books. Mm. But yeah. the thing is for me, I just don't, a don't, don't have the mental, capacity to sit through it and two, uh, it just bothers me when I'm not active, like I'm one of these people. So I've kind of frameworked my own life around learning my way mm -hmm. so I can continue growing and not be handicapped by the fact that I don't like books. Gotcha. I got two more questions. Do you have time for two more? Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, as you've gotten older, what has become more important and what's become less important to you? Impact has become more important uh, than revenue. I think that's become something that's been much more meaningful. Uh, and I've, what's been something else that's been really big too is uh, the selectiveness of who I help has changed a lot. You know, when I was younger, I was big on helping everybody. And when I got older, I started becoming more focused on who I wanted to help with what. And how has that changed? Like, who do you say no to now? Uh, most people, actually. I found that... If someone hasn't helped themselves to a certain stage, uh, I just feel it's very difficult for me to waste my time bringing them to what they could learn on Google in 10 minutes. You know? I mean, like, like basically, someone has the ability to self-educate in so many sections of life uh, that if they truly are interested, a lot of the questions they ask, they could self-discover. 
Mm-hmm. And if someone has taken that step, then I feel like it's important to help their trajectory, but not create their trajectory. And so I've learned ultimately over the years to become a better teacher because I've committed to it through my books and my le- my educational products. And so I've learned what matters most to people who truly want to learn versus basically trying to uh, like sell courses for the sake of selling them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like those people, I usually, when people come to me and they go, Hey, I have all these questions about your car stuff. And I'm like, great. So where are you in the course? They're like, Oh, I haven't taken it yet, but I bought it. So I usually don't answer those people at all. And they get offended and they go, well, I paid you. I'm like, yeah, you paid me to go through my course and you haven't. So I can't help you yet. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that disconnects for people, which is fine. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've committed to being a teacher, not making money off of teaching. So that holds more weight for me than just like, oh, you paid for a course. So you're entitled to time with me. You know? No, I totally agree, man. I always, I always call people that ask you questions over and over again, ask holes. Cause all they do is they keep asking you some shit and they do nothing with it. And the other thing that I learned quite a few years ago is if you're not paying, you're not paying attention. So there's a lot of people who'd be like, Hey, you know, can I, like I get emails and DMS all the time from people like, Hey, you know, it looks like you're in this neighborhood in Toronto, you know, it'd be great to grab a coffee with you sometime and pick your brain. But what they're really saying is they want to pick my pocket because they want to steal my right. time from me. I don't know you. I don't owe you. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's a paywall between you and what you do for a reason. So you can protect your time. And it's not because you're an asshole. It's because it really demonstrates that you've got some skin in the game when you get to that point. You know what I mean? It's like the guys that buy your course and like, Hey, I bought your course and I want to talk to you about this. Okay. So what part are you in? Well, I haven't really done anything with it yet. All right, well do the course. Right. Right. And then let's have a conversation about it. If you're still confused, we have processes that are available for you to get all of your answers. And some people just, you know, like a lot of guys that take my course go, Hey, so I found this car and I'm like, great. So what'd you learn about it? Oh, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you're asking me? You just you just paid to take this eight-hour course. How, then I look at their logs because we log what people view or don't view on the site. Yeah. And I'm like, you haven't even logged into the site. They're like, oh, there's a site? I'm like, yeah, it was the button right after you paid that said log in here. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. I'm like, so uh, what did you think you were buying? He goes, well, I thought I could just join this group and ask questions. And I'm like, you no. can, but I recommend you go to the course that you paid for and the thousands of articles that are there to help you. And you know, um, when they do, they realize there's a lot of value there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, last question for you. Describe an average week for you. Like, what does that look like? Average week? Yeah. Like a typical uh, week. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll probably buying anywhere from three to eight cars a week. Um, I'm probably buying about 15, 20 watches a week. And outside of that, I'm doing a lot of writing lately. So I'm trying to come out with a third sequel to Third Circle, which is my final book ever. Mm. So I don't plan to write any other books. So that's been a work in progress for the last year. Uh, and it's my most important like project to date. So that's kind of what I work on the most. But I would tell you that the majority of my time now, because between all the companies I have and the investments I have in companies, is spent basically either on the phone or on Skype with people. Um, more from an advisory role than anything else. So like I believe in creating results through people. So I don't believe in micromanaging even my own businesses. So I spend a lot of proactive time coaching my own team and people that have basically my interest at heart in being better at what they do rather than just correct their course. So a lot of people will sit in an advisory board and be like, whenever you have a problem, call me you know, I'll, I'll, like I have some solutions or I can help you out of this issue or give you some guidance. I look at it the opposite way. I go, whenever you have a problem, figure it out. When you don't have a problem, call me so I can make sure we can work on the things so that when you have problems, you know how to handle them without me. And so, you know, having these proactive calls with people has really helped kind of not put my companies in a reactive mode and also keep a good grasp on the mental state of the people that are basically creating results for me. You know, mm. uh, I've always felt that that was much better approach to leadership, especially in a lot of cases where in a lot of my businesses, I'm an absent leader, meaning I'm not a CEO that is functioning as CEO. So I'm more of a chairman than a CEO. And in the cases where I have CEOs, it's become easier to engage in more of a friendship 
style conversation regarding how the person can grow to a better state and be better prepared for what's to come. Awesome. Um, on that note, let's, uh, let's wrap her up. Uh, shout out to where people can find you. Anything you want to pitch them, any products you want to mention, what you're working on? Yeah. So the, the best things to do right now, like I think if you want to learn more about anything you've learned today is basically visit learnfrompj.com. It's really simple. Um, that you'll find all of my courses we discussed on, on this show. And of course, if you want to follow me, get a kick out of life, talking cars, watches, and of course, philosophy. You can follow me on Instagram at iCreateMillionaires or on YouTube at Exotic Car Hacks. Uh, both places that I'm very active on, but Instagram is really the best way to reach kind of a broad spectrum of everything I do rather than just one aspect or another. And Rich, I want to appreciate you for having me on the show. You know, very nice of you to, uh, you know, welcome my story onto your audience. So thank you. Yeah, man. Appreciate you joining me. Thanks a lot. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next broadcast. Peace out. All right. Stay on for a minute. Uh, just